Let's turn in our Bibles together to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue our study today. And so far in this study, we've seen a lot of ink spent on specifically dealing with the conflict that the Apostle Paul is having at this time with the Corinthian church family. And much of this letter is Paul defending his character against the criticism that's being thrown his way. And what's so particularly painful about that for Paul is in this situation, he planted this church, so it's personal. But now in that church, false teachers have come in behind him, and they were not only discrediting him before that congregation, they were also leading folks away from the gospel of grace. So Paul desires to be reconciled to his Corinthians brothers and sisters, And in our passage today, he describes the ingredients that are necessary for reconciliation to take place. That's my title of the message, The Ingredients of Reconciliation. Now, as I grew up as a kid, my recollection has always been that my mom was a great cook. Uh, She was from an Italian family, so not only could she cook well, she could cook a lot of food. And... um, But after she died in 2011, my dad shared with me that my mom hadn't always been a great cook. Like a lot of married couples early on in their marriage, my dad was a bit of a guinea pig for her cooking. So he told me about one time when she cooked breakfast for him and she made homemade biscuits. Now, this is 1960. So in 1960, you make biscuits from scratch. And that meant you gotta get all your ingredients together, flour, sugar, salt, butter, eggs, milk, buttermilk, and of course, yeast. And once you got all that mixed together, you work the dough in real good and you'd cut the biscuits and then you'd put those in an iron skillet and then you'd put that iron skillet in the refrigerator overnight so that the biscuits could rise. Then in the morning, you'd pop that skillet in the oven and voila, you got homemade biscuits from scratch. I think I'm making some of you hungry right now. (laughs) My mom did all that, but as dad told the story, she forgot one of the ingredients. She forgot the yeast. And so when they sat down to eat breakfast, it was not good. My dad said, son, imagine biting into a hockey puck. (laughs) You got to use all the ingredients, right? And, And he went on to tell me that while they were eating that same morning, out of the corner of his eye, he saw a wolf spider crawling up along the floor in the kitchen right up against the wall. Now in Texas, wolf spiders are big and dangerous, but my dad was a great baseball player. I think you know where this story is headed. So he grabbed one of those biscuits and chunked it across the room and killed that spider right up against the wall. Ingredients matter. And if you leave one of them out, things aren't really gonna turn out the way that you hoped they would, right? I believe a good way to think about our content in our passage today is to notice the ingredients for reconciliation that Paul not only mentions here, but that more importantly, he demonstrates. So let's find out what those ingredients are as we stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. 
We are in 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to begin in verse 11. The Word of God says this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Paul's dilemma here in this passage is one that we all face when we are in conflict with another person. And what we just read includes the ingredients that are necessary to pursue reconciliation with other people. And it starts with number one on your outline, a hopeful approach. A hopeful approach. That's the first ingredient to reconciliation. You know, it's easy to get discouraged when you're in a conflict with another person, isn't it? So you might think, oh, this is good. We just need to be positive about reconciling. So yeah, let's have a hopeful approach. But for Paul, a hopeful approach to reconciliation doesn't begin with just being positive. It begins with the fear of the Lord. Letter A on your outline is the fear of the Lord. And, and that may seem counterintuitive to you and me. But remember from last Sunday, our study, we spent a lot of time on the judgment seat of Christ, which is not a judgment on lost people, but it's a judgment on those who have been saved by Christ. For all who are in Christ, we will not be judged on the basis of our sin because Christ has borne the penalty of our sin. But we will face the judgment seat of Christ, and that is a judgment of stewardship. It's a judgment of rewards where we will be judged based on the opportunities that the Lord has given us and whether we were faithful or we weren't. And our faithfulness or lack thereof will determine the rewards that the Lord gives us in heaven. And there's way more to it than that. So if you haven't listened or watched last Sunday's message, I'd encourage you to go back and do that. But anytime the Bible mentions God's judgment, the response of a Christian should be a healthy fear of the Lord. We are to have a reverent fear of God because of the awesome nature of who he is. And that fear is a respect that inspires you and I to take advantages of the opportunities he gives us. So when the Bible says in verse 11, look at it with me, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, it's linking two things that go together. The fear of the Lord and our desire to persuade others. Now, I think that there's at least two applications to this statement. One is more of a global, broader application about sharing the gospel with folks that don't know Christ. 
So are we to use our conversation to persuade the lost about their lostness and their need for a savior? Absolutely we are. That's living missionally. It's what the Great Commission is all about. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 19, go and make disciples. So that's one application, but the second is connected to the specific context here where Paul is choosing to defend himself against the false claims that are made about him. And in that context, his fear of God is motivating him to truthfully persuade the believers at Corinth so that he and they can be reconciled. Do you realize that successful reconciliation is not guaranteed? Do you realize that when you're in conflict with someone, it's not all up to you whether reconciliation occurs or not? That doesn't completely rest on our shoulders. Paul writes elsewhere in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, I'm gonna have them leave that verse up there for just a moment. And I want you to notice that this verse is not a promise that you will have peace with everyone because you won't, not in a fallen world anyway. But the command is, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, you and I are to seek peace with the other person. Why? Because we're Christians and God has made peace with us through Christ. Therefore, we have the ability to be at peace with others. But as most of you know, it always takes two to tango. And sometimes the other person doesn't want to tango. But if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all. See, in any given conflict with another person, we can take a hopeful approach in the fear of the Lord and we can be faithful to do what we can on our end to reconcile. And we can be hopeful about that because we won't be held accountable on how the other person responds. No, at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be judged on how we handled our response. Knowing the fear of the Lord, Paul says, we persuade others. So let me ask you, who is it that you're in conflict with right now? Do you fear God in your conflict? What I mean by that is, are you acknowledging that God is sovereign over your conflict? Or is this just something you're gonna have to figure out? I don't think we're always aware that the Lord is directing our conflicts for his good and wise purposes in our lives. He's sovereign. Oh, and he's omniscient too, by the way, which means he knows all the facts about your conflict, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's why Paul says in the second half of verse 11, look at it with me in your Bibles, he says, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul is hopeful in this conflict because he fears his sovereign and omniscient Lord, who, by the way, is in the business of reconciliation. It's kind of what God does. See, when we acknowledge who God really is in our conflict, it affects how hopeful you and I can be as we attempt to be persuasive with the other person. His hopeful approach here in verse 11 begins with the fear of the Lord. But a hopeful approach also 
does not require the praise of others. Letter B on your outline is it doesn't require the praise of other people. Now remember, one of the issues at the church in Corinth was that the church members were having less and less confidence in Paul. And that was a direct result of the false teachers who had come into that church who were now both criticizing Paul's leadership and his teaching of the gospel. But even so, Paul had a clear conscience about all of this. He was hopeful because he knew eventually the truth would come out. If not soon, it would most certainly be evident at the judgment seat of Christ. And that was the only real commendation he was concerned with. That's why he starts verse 12 by saying to that congregation, look at it with me. He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again. Well, okay, what are you doing, Paul? Keep reading. But giving you cause to boast about us. So he makes a disclaimer first as what he's not doing. He's not commending himself to the church like the false teachers did. They use letters of commendation to make themselves seem legit to that congregation. But Paul's not gonna play that game. He took a shot at those letters back in chapter three when we looked at it a few weeks ago. But the boasting he mentions here doesn't mean to brag about somebody else, but it means to have a confidence in someone, and that someone is Paul. He's not fishing for a compliment. He's teaching that church and us today to care more about the affirmation of the Lord than the praise of other people. And we know that because he explains why he's doing what he's doing in the second half of verse 12. Look at it with me. He says, so that you, congregation, may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. He's referring to the false teachers at the very end of that verse. But he's also equipping that church to answer those false teachers. He's arming that congregation in Corinth with the truth to fight back against the ones who really do care about the praise of men, and that's the false teachers. See, brothers and sisters, we can live either for the praise of God himself when we stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, or we can live now for the praise of other people whose opinion, by the way, won't matter one bit on judgment day. Do we fear God or do we fear people? The answer is important because our hope in reconciling a conflict with another person does not rest in the praise of other people, but it rests in the fear of the Lord. Paul's hopeful approach begins with the fear of the Lord, and it doesn't require the praise of other people, but also it risks being misunderstood. Letter C on your outline. Is it risk being misunderstood? In verse 13, Paul continues, Look at it with me. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now he's making a contrast here between a person being beside themselves and a person being in their right mind. And I just love that the ESV uses the phrase beside ourselves because that just means that there's at least one person on the ESV translation team that was from the South. Hallelujah. And if you grew up in the South, you know this phrase, she's just beside herself or he's beside himself. Did you hear about Charlotte? She got engaged. He popped the question and she said yes, and she is just beside herself. 
That phrase means the person is so excited about what just happened that they are out of their mind. And here in the text, the phrase beside ourselves means the same thing. In the Greek, it literally means out of mind. It was used to call someone insane. And that was probably happening to the Apostle Paul. But guess what? This wasn't the only time that Paul was accused of being insane in Acts chapter 26. When Paul is giving his own testimony about how God had saved him, the Roman governor of Palestine, a man named Festus, interrupts Paul's testimony and yells at Paul and says, Paul, you are out of your mind. And you know in Mark chapter three, the same thing was said of Jesus by his own family members. They thought he was out of his mind. So think about that. People looked at both the Apostle Paul and the Son of God as mentally unstable religious fanatics. So if anybody ever calls you that, take it as a compliment because you're in good company. See, Paul knows what his critics have said about him, so he uses that to his advantage here in verse 13. He doesn't seem to mind being characterized as insane by the false teachers as long as his siblings in Christ in Corinth regard him as sane. He says that in the second half of verse 13. He says, if we are in our right mind, it is for you, brothers and sisters. You see how he's attempting to reconcile here? He's willing to risk being misunderstood by those who are not Christians in order to be understood by those who are. Paul's not seeking to be reconciled with the false teachers. He's seeking to be reconciled with the Corinthian church. And he's okay if he's misunderstood by his critics. His approach is hopeful. And a hopeful approach is the first ingredient needed for reconciliation. But the second ingredient is this, number two on your outline, a gracious motivation. Number two is a gracious motivation. If you desire reconciliation with someone that desire does not come naturally to you. Me neither. What comes naturally to us is to dismiss the conflict as no big deal or to dismiss the person as not being worth our time or to hold a grudge or get bitter or angry or publicly blast them on social media. That's what comes naturally to us. But see, for the Christian, a different motivation can come supernaturally. And that is a gracious motivation. That's what Paul talks about next in verse 14. Look at it with me in your Bibles. For the love of Christ controls us. See, a gracious motivation, friends, comes from Christ's love. Letter A on your outline. It comes from Christ's love. When we read uh, the phrase, for the love of Christ controls us in verse 14, let's be clear about what that means. It's not saying that our love for Christ is our motivation. No, 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 no. It's saying that Christ's love for us is our motivation. Don't get that backwards. 1 John 4, 19 states, we love because he first loved us. Brothers and sisters, before Jesus saved any of us, we did not know how to love unconditionally. We just didn't. But once he saves us, his love controls us. Remember, Paul's at odds with his brothers and sisters, but he desires to reconcile with them because he's thinking about the love that Christ has for him. And since that's the gracious motivation that's controlling how he responds to them, why would he not reconcile with them? It's the love of Christ compelling him to do so. 
and so it is to be with us. You know what this means for you and I practically? If we don't desire reconciliation, we need to check ourselves. Toward the, toward the end of this very letter, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, I'm not questioning your salvation today, but if you're in conflict with someone and you have no desire whatsoever to seek reconciliation to them, I'm encouraging you to question your salvation. Do what the scripture commands. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Let this conflict be a test for you on the eternal matter of your soul. John Piper once said, grace is not just forgiveness. Grace is also the empowerment to do what is right. And friends, you and I in Christ are empowered to seek reconciliation. We have been given a gracious motivation that comes from Christ's love. But that motivation also is defined by Christ's death. Let her be on your outline. It's defined by Christ's death. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, Paul comes to an astonishing conclusion in verse 14. Look at it with me. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. So what's the conclusion? Keep reading. Here it comes. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might no longer, excuse me, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, to be clear, the word love in verse 14 is agape. And around here, we defined agape as an unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to another person's well-being. That's the way Christ loves his sheep, and it's also the way his sheep are to love each other in the local church. That's the definition of love, but the pinnacle example of agape love is what Paul is describing here in these two verses. And before we break down those verses, I want to reiterate what Pastor Russell said last Sunday about the usage of the word all here. The word all has to be checked against the context of who this statement was originally written to. And this letter is written to the believers in Corinth and Achaia. So when he says that one has died for all, the one is a reference to Christ and the all is a reference to Christians. All those who have or ever will turn from their sin and trust Christ by faith. All does not mean every single person who ever lived or will ever lived. And we saw that back in our study of the book of John a couple of months ago. We learned that from John 10, that Jesus died for all his sheep. But not every person is one of Jesus' sheep. Those who do not believe in Jesus are not a part of his flock, right? So we must remember that the substitutionary atoning work of Christ's death on the cross has a particular scope to it. He died for his sheep. Don't take my word for it. See it for yourself in the scriptures. That's why I put John 10 on your summer notes. Go back and study that chapter yourself. But here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul clarifies a twofold principle about what the death of Christ accomplishes for his sheep. 
First of all, Christ died that we might die. Look at the second half of verse 14 again. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. This is about the Christian's identification with the death of Christ. When he died, we died with him. His death makes our salvation a reality because when God saves us, we die to our old way of life. See, there was a David Miller that lived the first 13 years of his life that none of you have ever met because that old David Miller died when God saved me at the age of 13. And that's true of every single saved person here today. There was an old you. And because of the death of Jesus, that old you, just like my old you, has died. That's what his death has accomplished. Christ died that we might die. But Paul's not done. There's one more thing he mentions that the death of Jesus accomplishes. Look at it in verse 15. He makes the point that Christ died so that we might live. Look at what he says. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Again, this is about the Christian's identification with Jesus. So not only is the old David Miller dead, but the new David Miller is very much alive and he doesn't live for himself. He lives for the one who has died and was raised. He lives for Christ. And that too is true for every single saved person here. Christ died that we might die. Christ died that we might live. These two principles are precisely what Paul sums up in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Brothers and sisters, this is what the love of Christ looks like. And that agape love serves as our gracious motivation to pursue reconciliation with someone we're in conflict with. His love for us is what motivates us. So far, we've seen two ingredients for reconciliation, a hopeful approach and a gracious motivation. And now finally, we have the third, a new perspective. Number three on your outline is a new perspective. That's the last ingredient for reconciliation that Paul mentions in this passage today. And he begins in verse 16 with a pivotal statement. Look at it with me. What he says, from now on, therefore. Okay, that phrase denotes that something has changed. Paul says that from now on, from the moment described actually in verse 14, where Paul and you and I first understood the compelling love of Christ, from that point forward, we have a completely new perspective on everything. Friends, salvation ultimately changes everything. If you're in Christ, your new birth, your conversion changes your perspective. It changes how you look at everything. And what that new perspective does is it causes us to think differently about other people. Letter A on your outline. Causes us to think differently about others. Again, in verse 16, look at it with me. He says, from now on, therefore, what? We regard no one according to the flesh. Now, the phrase according to the flesh means from a worldly point of view. See, since God had saved Paul, he thinks differently about other people. <laughs> he doesn't think of them from a worldly point of view anymore. 
People are no longer a commodity for Paul. You ever known a person who lives their life thinking that everyone else exists for their benefit? You ever known somebody like that? That's awful. They see people as a resource to be used, not a person to know. Friends, the, the Christian perspective thinks differently about other people. So whether someone is a Jew or a Gentile or rich or poor, slave or free of this ethnicity or of that ethnicity, it's irrelevant. Why? Because of Christ. Salvation changes the way we think about other people. And in turn, it changes the way we respond to other people as well. Even people who may be externally different than us. Can I be blunt with you this morning? The awful arguments about ethnicity that take place in this country all the time now will not divide this church. You know why? Because if God has saved us, just as it says here in verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. We think differently than the world does about the immutable external characteristics of other people. And so when you and I think about reconciliation, those external differences may be an obstacle in our culture, but they are not an obstacle for we who are in Christ. The ingredient of a right perspective thinks differently about others. But it also causes us to think differently about Christ. Let her be on your outline. Let's not avoid the elephant in the room because Paul doesn't. <laughs> he continues on in verse 16. Look at the middle of verse 16. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. I love that he mentions this. It just makes me grin. His perspective about other people certainly has changed since God changed, saved him. But guess what? His perspective about Christ also has changed since God saved him. See, before his conversion, Paul was opposed to Christ and he persecuted those who followed Jesus. As an unsaved man, he saw Jesus as a threat, which by the way, was true of you before you came to faith in Christ and true of me before I came to faith in Christ. See, friends, it's only by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit drawing a person to salvation that causes us to think differently about Christ. Up until that point, we regard Christ from a worldly perspective. He's unimportant, he's uninteresting, and he's certainly not worthy of our worship and submission. By the way, let me pause here. If that describes your current perspective about Jesus, that he's uninteresting, He's unimportant and he's not worthy of your submission. You don't know him. You just don't, regardless of your religious resume. And so reconciling with another person that you're in conflict with is not your biggest need today. There's a greater reconciliation that you need because of your sin. See, your sin has put you at war with God. You're an enemy of God because you love yourself and you love your sin. And even though that seems right, in the end, it leads to death. And the Bible says death is the wage that you've earned for being a sinner. And as a sinner, you deserve death and the judgment of God in hell for all of eternity. 
That's the bad news about you. But guess what? There's also good news for you. And the good news is what God has done for sinners like you and me. He's made a way to be forgiven. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we cannot live and to die a brutal death that we rightly deserved. He took the place of sinners like us so that all those who turn from their sin and trust him by faith can be reconciled to God. That's the reconciliation you should be concerned about this morning. Romans 5.8 explains it this way. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. My friend, if you've never turned from your sin and by faith trusted in Christ, today can very well be your day of salvation. Myself and others will be hanging around after this service is over and we would love to have a conversation with you about that. The ingredient of a right perspective not only causes us to think differently about other people and about Christ, but finally, it also causes us to think differently about ourselves. Last on your outline, it causes us to think differently about ourselves. Verse 17 here is one of those verses that just beautifully captures the essence of the gospel in one sentence. Look at it with me as we close. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This verse, along with verse 21 that we'll look at two Sundays from now, these are commonly referred to as the great exchange. And again, if you're outside of Christ this morning, verse 17 is what would be true in your life if you turn from your sin and come to Christ. And if you're in Christ today, this is what is already true about you and I. Verse 17 declares if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's not just talking about getting a new start or a new lease on life. But the Bible says that when God reconciles a sinner to himself, that sinner is now a new creature. Meaning from the moment of our salvation, we begin to participate in the new creation that is to come. I might have more to say about that in the Beyond the Notes podcast this week. But here in verse 17, one of the things that it definitely means now is we have a new nature because God has given us a new nature. Something we've never experienced before. The old has passed away, Paul says. Our old desires, our old plans, our priorities, the way we think, our beliefs, all that's passed away. And even though our propensity to sin still remains, our old way of looking at sin has also passed away. As Christians, we think differently about our sin. We no longer try to rationalize it or downplay it. We see sin for what it is, selfish, destructive, disobedience to God. So what does a Christian do with sin? <laughs> We're to repent and turn away from it. We daily put it to death. As new creatures, we see it for what it exactly is and we could not have seen that until the old had passed away and the new had come. So what's new about us when God saves us? Well, everything. <laughs> the new has come. The old has passed away. 
and we are a new creature by the grace of the Father, by the death and resurrection of the Son, and by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is the great exchange in salvation, and it is an amazing trade. And if God can choose to reconcile an undeserving sinner like you and I to himself in salvation, he certainly can choose to reconcile you and the person you might be in conflict with today. So if we're gonna seek reconciliation with another person, we ought not forget the main ingredients.